for its impact in our lives. We thank you that we can sing of you as our anchor, how you keep us steady during times of trial. We thank you that we can be here this morning, Lord, and study your word together. Pray that you would open our hearts and minds to it. Pray that you would help us to apply it in the ways that we should. God, help us to recognize both just the beautiful faith of this man and then also the beautiful gospel that we see presented by Peter. And we need your help this morning, Lord, so would you please help us in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one of, this doesn't really have anything to do with the text. Um, I know that's a great way to start out the sermon, but one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Bake, somebody asked him, what do you usually pray before you start preaching? And he said, well, it's a short prayer. And they said, really, what is it? And he said, it's usually just help, you know, <laughs> and then he, then he would start preaching. And sometimes as we read texts like this, we do need God's help to understand it. Um, as I was reading this text, I was reminded of a, of a story that I read um, this weekend. Last year in Denmark, an artist paid somebody named Jens Hanning $84,000 to recreate two of his older sculptures. They paid him the money in advance, and then he, in return, sent back two blank stone canvases, or whatever they would call them. So he didn't do any work on it. The museum was obviously furious about this and wanted all their money back, and the artist, in return, replied that it was conceptual art, that it was that beauty was in the eye of the beholder. I'm thinking if this is what real art is, then maybe I should get into the art business. Because I, if you know me, I don't have very good handwriting or artistic ability, but I'm pretty sure I could do that. We looked this morning at our text in Acts 3, and it says that this event happened at a place called the Beautiful Gate. Um, and a lot of people think that it actually wasn't called the Beautiful Gate until after this miracle. And really what I think we see here is a beautiful story, a beautiful story of both a man who gets his vision back or his ability to walk back again. And then we also see a beautiful gospel as well. As we look at this text this morning, I hope we can see that even though we live in the middle of a sin cursed world that is broken, as we see the disease of sin that is affected each and every one of our lives, we see war and sickness, we see poverty and destruction, we see family members that are torn apart by death. This text really shows us the beauty of the gospel and how the gospel can help us be beautiful again. So as we look at this text this morning, what I want us to see, our main idea, is this. Christ has the power to heal us from our ultimate affliction. Christ has the power to heal us from our ultimate affliction. Let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 3, and we'll first of all see a beautiful faith. A beautiful faith. Would you look with me at verse 1? Now, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, we don't know exactly how long this is after Pentecost. We know it was a decent amount of time after. They're going to the temple for this hour of prayer. It says it's the ninth hour. 
Um, this hour of prayer was a time when devout Jewish men normally would gather at the temple to pray. And I think it's important for us to remember that while Peter and John are now Christians, followers of Christ, they still have Jewish heritage, so they still would go do things at the temple, oftentimes daily, and they still would pray to God, who is both the father of the Jewish nation, and also he's also our father and our Christian nation as well. So they're going to this temple early in the day at the ninth hour to pray. And as they're there, look at verse 2. It says, and a, man, and a man lame from birth was being carried. We don't know much about this man, but he seems to be someone that everyone else knew in the community. Everybody saw him coming to the temple daily and being laid by this gate. It says he was laid at the gate of the, dem- the temple. That is the beautiful gate. We're not sure exactly what gate this was, but we think it was probably the gate that entered into the innermost parts of the temple courts by the woman's court. It was a large gate that had bronze on the entrances of it. Um, it really was beautiful to behold. And oftentimes people would leave their sick and wounded right at the front of the gate so that people would um, see them and give money and offerings to them as well. So this man, who again I think was pretty famous in the community, he's laid right here at the beautiful gates. And look at verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... He asked to receive alms. So he's asking now for money, for a gift. This was actually something very common that Jewish men would do. They thought it was their duty or their responsibility from God to give gifts to the poor and to the sick. Um, It's even more than like how we view benevolence today. But they thought it was very important in that day to give in the Jewish community. So there's nothing unusual about these first three verses, really. Um, This is all pretty standard, that this man would be asking for money as they're walking into the temple. Now, obviously, what happens is not usually what happens in the temple. I want us to think about this, though, that Jesus often went to the temple, right? Jesus would have walked through this gate. And just speculate with me for a moment This man had probably heard of Christ, don't you think? Christ was a very important figure during that time. And imagine being a lame man who couldn't walk, who hears about Christ, who raises the dead and makes lame people walk, who heals the sick. And you'd be excited. And just if you could touch Christ's garment, as some people would say, they believed they would be healed. And this man, probably anxious for this opportunity, for whatever reason, never meets Christ. And so he's probably given up hope. In fact, he's asking for money. He doesn't really have any hope that he's going to walk again. He probably thinks his hope left when Christ left, whether he thought he died like the rest of the Jews did, or whether he thought he was ascended in to heaven like he actually was. 
So just think about that with me for a moment. We don't have any verse in Scripture that necessarily confirms that for us, but I'd like to think that he probably did know who Christ was. So this all is in the background of this story that we see, this setting here in verses 1 and 2. He sees Peter and John entering the temple, and he starts asking them for money. And notice what happens in verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him. This means to look at kind of circumspectly, to pay close attention to. And it said John did this as well. And he says, look at us. Now, when I first read this, I thought Peter was saying, you know, look at us. We don't have any money. We're poor. But that's not what I think is actually going on here. I think Peter is actually calling his attention. You know, there's a lot of people in the temple. And Peter is saying, pay attention to us. Pay attention to us. Look at what is about to happen. And so the text says he fixed his attention on them. He started looking at them closely, expecting to receive something from them. But what he would receive was definitely not what he was expecting. In verse 6, Peter, and again, this man's probably expecting to get some sort of gold handout, something that would help his condition. But what does Peter say? I have no silver and gold. If you have the King James that says silver and gold, have I none. I've always remembered those verses. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter says we don't have any material possessions. We don't have anything of value really in this earth. But we can fix the reason that you don't have any material possessions. We can make you walk. Now this man had been lame since birth. He'd never been able to walk. He'd never been able, he didn't even know what that felt like. He'd been crippled. And yet, Peter says, rise up and walk. And I love verse 7. It says, and he took him by the right hand. So he helps him up. Remember, this guy was never able to walk. So even just the coordination and the function to be able to get up off the ground, he didn't understand. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. And it says immediately happened right then. This guy didn't even have a chance to think about how crazy and off the wall Peter's comment is. And he says immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. His legs, he's able to move, he's able to get up now. And notice he doesn't just walk. But in verse 8 it says, leaping up, he jumps up. Now this guy, again, I mean, imagine you've never been able to walk in your entire life. Now you finally have the strength to. But don't you think the coordination and the just knowledge of knowing how to walk, I mean, all of us, you know, we don't remember this, but our parents showed us how to walk and how to move, you know. Uh, I think they held a cookie in front of me so that I would walk towards the cookie. Maybe they did that a little bit too much. I'm not sure. But, you know, they showed us when we're children how to move and how to walk, right? 
And this guy just leaps up and he starts running around. You know, it's a miracle, not only in the sense that he has the strength and ability to do this, but even in the coordination and in the knowledge of how to do this. He says, leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And where does he go? It says he entered the temple with them. He'd not been allowed since he was a uh, cripple to enter into the most intimate parts of the temple. So he goes in to worship. Now imagine being in the temple. The temple was more than just even where they worship, but it was a pretty important social and economic place every day for them. Imagine being there and seeing this guy who you know can't walk. He's leaping around. He's jumping around. He's excited. He is rejoicing. And he's walking with Peter and John. And so Luke says in verse 9, And all the people saw him. All the people in the temple, they knew who this guy was, and they saw him. They paid attention to him. And notice what he's doing. He's walking around. He's praising God. He's rejoicing. He is so thankful for what has happened. And these people start paying attention to this man. And notice in verse 10 it says, And they recognized him. And they recognized him. They knew who he was. They knew he was this lame man who had been unable to walk. He was the one, it says, who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. They're thinking, this guy asked us for money all the time at the beautiful gate. Some of them are probably thinking, did we get ripped off by this guy? You know, has he been able to walk the entire time and we've just been giving him our money, you know? And it says at the end of the verse, they were filled with wonder and amazement. We've seen several times in Acts, the people responding to the early church in wonder and fear and awe. These are some new words that Luke uses for us. He is very descriptive. This word for wonder means that it was a state of astonishment. At a very unusual event. The second word amazement means a profound experience. They were beside themselves. They had no idea what was going on. Now as we look at this person. You might say well did he really have that much faith? Peter is the one who comes to him. And says rise up and walk. Well I'm amazed at the faith of Peter, who has such faith in the gospel and in Christ that he believes he could go to this person and say, rise up and walk, and he would, to definitely say that he would be healed. The faith to tell this guy, hey, I know you need money, and I don't have any money, but I can help you rise up and walk. It's actually... A reminder of Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 5 with me for just a moment.
In Luke chapter 5, we see two back-to-back miracles. Christ heals a leper, and Christ heals a paralytic. And they really set the stage then for what Christ does in verse 27. It says, And after this he went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of who? Of tax collectors, and others reclining at the tables with him. This is what I want us to focus on. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples. And they said, why do you eat with tax collectors and with sinners? And I love what Jesus says here. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ is saying, I've healed these people because they know they are sick. And in a deeper spiritual sense, Christ came to heal people of their ultimate affliction. To be the great physician for their sin. And for the sin that was eating away at them and nagging at their hearts. Jesus is talking about more than physical healing. He's talking about spiritual restoration. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they were not sick It was that they didn't realize they were sick. And what I love about our passage this morning is that Peter's going to take this physical example of healing and he's going to use it to preach the gospel. So we see this beautiful faith, not just of the man who's healed, but of Peter and John as well. And now let's look at this beautiful gospel, starting in verse 11. Notice what this man does. It says, and he... While he clung to Peter and John. You know, these guys might have thought they were going to go back to their business. But this guy is hanging on to them. He's not letting go of them. He's following them around. And it says, all the people, again, notice this amazement word. They are utterly astounded. They're beside themselves. They are in amazement. And they ran together to the portico or the porch is a more modern word for it, called Solomon's. Solomon's porch, which was this large structure on the side of the temple. It had several columns there. It was very big. It was oftentimes where people would go if it started raining and they were in the temple. They would go to Solomon's porch and they would continue whatever they were doing there. And so Peter and John start, in my opinion, directing traffic Towards Solomon's porch. Now, why are they doing this? Because I don't think they want the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem quite yet. And so they start directing traffic over to Solomon's porch. And notice Peter uses this opportunity to address the people in verse 12. He says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you have this amazement? Why do you stare at us 
as though by our own power or piety, we have made this man well. Peter's saying, this isn't anything that I could do. This isn't any power that I have in and of myself. But this obviously had to come from someone else. And in the rest of the text, Peter's going to explain where this power comes from. He's going to define the gospel. And he's first going to show us that this is the gospel of God. That this is the gospel of God. He says, the God in verse 13, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. First of all, this is God's gospel. He starts finding common ground with them. He says, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God was faithful to them. Why does he bring up these three men? Because this is really where Israel starts, right? It starts with Abraham leaving his hometown, continues with Isaac and Jacob. They're called the patriarchs. He's informing them that the gospel that they're about to hear comes from God. That it's not divorced, that it's not different from what they've heard in the Old Testament. That there's not a different God, but that this is his gospel. And the gospel comes from God. He's saying this is the God of our fathers. Peter's including himself in this. He's saying this is true for me as well. This salvation plan comes from God. It reminds me, turn to Romans chapter 1 just briefly with me. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God. You might say, well, the gospel is about Jesus. Yes, but whose gospel is it? It's not my gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It's God's gospel. It's his plan of salvation. And Peter's making this point here, I believe, as well. That this plan of salvation, this gospel that we see in the New Testament, it comes from the God of the Old Testament. And that, that God does not change. We secondly see that this is a gospel about Jesus. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified Jesus, his servant, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So it's a gospel about Jesus, the servant of God, the son of God, who was a righteous man, as we'll see soon. But Peter, and if you've noticed in Acts with us, as we've been studying this, Peter's pretty hard on the Jewish people, isn't he? He keeps saying, you know, you guys are the ones that killed Jesus. You guys are the ones that put Christ to death. And so he's saying, you know, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He wanted Jesus to walk free, but you guys insisted that he should die. But you guys are the ones who put him on 
the cross. So we see this is a gospel about Jesus who was wrongly accused. These people would have known who Christ was. We'll see later in Acts as we start seeing the gospel go out to the Gentiles. These people who are sharing the gospel will have to do a lot more work in explaining who Jesus was. Notice Peter doesn't have to do this here in Acts. In the first sermon we looked at a couple weeks ago, and here as well. And why is that? Because the Jews knew Jesus. Because Jesus was a popular figure during that time. He said, you delivered Jesus over. You denied Jesus when Pilate wanted to release him. Notice verse 14. You denied, and he calls him a different name, the Holy and Righteous One. Christ is holy. He's set apart from sin. He's not like us. He kept the law perfectly. Secondly, Christ is righteous. He's the definition of righteousness. Look at 1 John 1 with me for just a moment. Or 1 John 2, sorry. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the righteous one. He is the standard of what is right. His holiness shows us that he's without sin, without error, without blemish. His righteousness shows us that he's done right. And notice Luke and Peter, they are contrasting this to who? It says in verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for what? A murderer, Barabbas, someone who had killed, who was a sinner to be released back to you. Christ was holy. Christ was righteous. And they asked in return for someone who is not righteous. May I remind us that while Barabbas is a criminal and a sinner, that exchange was true for all of us as well. That Christ substituted himself, took the place of every one of us who are unrighteous. Christ is holy. Christ is righteous. And we are like Barabbas. We are sinful people. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that Peter is showing us here. Look at verse 15. And you killed, you murdered the author of life. Now, depending on what translation you're using, I could say author of life or prince of life. I lean more towards author of life, but it's not a huge deal necessarily. You killed the one who began life, the creator, the one from whom all life comes from. It says you murdered him. But God raised him from the dead. Notice how he anchors his argument in the resurrection again. The resurrection of Christ from the dead. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I love what it says in Acts 2 as Peter's explaining this. When it says it was not 
possible for him to be held by the pangs of death. Death could not hold Christ. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And he says, to this we are all witnesses. We all saw this. This was part of being an apostle even, that they saw this, that they bore witness to this. Then he connects it to what they're seeing with the miracle in verse 16. And his name, Christ's name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. It is through faith, it is through the name of Christ, that this man could be strong, that he could walk again. It says, Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. It is through faith in Christ. It's through the power of Christ that this man is able to rise up and walk. So we see this is a gospel about Jesus. This is a gospel about Jesus. Noticely, thirdly, in this second point, this is a gospel for sinners. This is a gospel for sinners. Verse 17, he puts it back on them. He says, and now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. You know, Peter's been hard on the Jewish people. At first glance, we might think Peter's letting up on them. Peter's saying, hey, you guys aren't that bad. He's saying you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. You didn't know any better. You just did this out of ignorance. But notice, this is not a sinless ignorance. Look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter's saying, you didn't know any better, but you should have actually known better. You didn't know any better not to kill Christ, but had you read your Old Testament, you would have known better. You would have known that this was the Christ, that the prophets spoke of Christ. And so at first glance, you're thinking, oh, these Jewish people, maybe he's letting them off the hook. Well, actually, he's calling them something worse. He's saying you actually didn't understand the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament points us to Christ. I'm not saying that in every verse we can see Christ in the Old Testament. But what I am saying is that the Old Testament points us to Christ. As you read in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, what does God say? I'm going to send someone who will crush the head of the serpent. As you read the Torah, the books of the law, we see that Christ keeps the law perfectly. You think, who could keep all of these different laws that the Jews had to follow? Jesus could. So you read Joshua and Judges, and you see that there's no king in Israel. So every person did what was right in their own eyes. It reminds us that we need a perfect king in King Jesus. In the books of the kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, 
We see time and time again, this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. Even the kings that did right in the sight of the Lord still got it wrong. They still messed up. And what does that show us? We need a better king. We need a better ruler. And then all the prophets tell us of Christ who would come, who would be born of a virgin, who would suffer and die for our sins. The Old Testament, really the Bible, points us to Christ, points us to Jesus. Look at verse 19. If all these things are true, then he says, repent, therefore. Notice how the book of Acts is about repentance. One action, but it's turning from my sin, my selfishness, my pride. And in one action, I'm turning towards God and living for him and his righteousness. I no longer live for myself, my sin, my selfishness. Repentance is I'm turning towards Christ and living for him. Peter's saying if this is true, then you all need to repent. Repent of your ignorance, of the fact that you didn't understand that this is Jesus. We've been talking in young adult Bible study about the different signs. And the Pharisees continue to ask Jesus for a sign. And yet time and time again we see that Christ is proving from the scriptures which the Pharisees should have known. He is proving that he is the Messiah. But they're not satisfied. Nothing would do. Even when he's on the cross they still asked him for a sign. Peter's saying understand the gospel. Repent of your sin, of your ignorance Turn to Christ and notice the results with me in verse 19. That your sins may be blotted out, erased, washed clean. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Your sins will be forgiven, erased, blotted out. You will find rest in the Lord. This is both a personal rest when we receive the gospel, we can experience this rest right away. It's also a future rest. That one day, when everything is said and done, we will be able to rest. It reminds me of the pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress, who finally enters the celestial city. Who finally enters rest after his long journey. And Peter's telling us that each and every one of us can experience this rest from the Lord. And he says one day at the end of verse 20. He may send Christ appointed for you Jesus. One day Christ will come again in his second coming. And he will give us ultimate rest. It's a gospel that is God's. It's God's gospel. It's a gospel about Jesus. His life. His death. His resurrection. It's a gospel for sinners that we can repent and know God. And then finally, it's a gospel seen in all of Scripture. Whom heaven must receive, talking about Jesus, until the time 
for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. So it's a gospel about Jesus, but where is Jesus currently? He's ascended into heaven, right? He's ascended into heaven with the Father until this future judgment, this future time. And what Peter is saying is that this has been spoken about long ago. Again, he's connecting this to the Old Testament. First in verse 22 with Moses. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And that shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Moses, he's quoting Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe chapter 19, saying that this future prophet would come and you had better pay attention, you had better listen to him. Again, the plan of the gospel, Christ, even this future judgment has been talked about throughout all of scripture. Look at verse 24, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So from Samuel throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they attest to Christ, they attest to this future either rest if you're a believer or unrest if you're not. And then finally he connects this to the nation of Israel in verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Remember, who's he talking to? Jewish people. Jewish people who were in the temple. He's reminding them of God's covenant promise to Abraham. And I want to point out that Peter believes, I believe at this point, Peter thinks that this covenant, this promise, is still going to be fulfilled. That there's still aspects of this that are going to be fulfilled in the future. He's reminding them of God's covenant promise that through this nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And the gospel is one of those arenas, one of those ways that the rest of the earth would be blessed. Look at verse 26. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first. The gospel first in Acts comes to the Jews, the Jewish people, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The gospel first comes to this Jewish people. If it comes to this verse, to them first, then who would it come to second? The Gentiles. And we'll see that in the rest of the book of Acts, starting in chapter 10. As we think about Acts chapter 3 this morning, I'm reminded of several lessons, or a couple lessons for us. First of all, care for people's physical well-being. Did Peter and John just walk past this man? Did they not pay attention to him? Well, no, they actually healed him. Now, I'm not saying we can heal people. I don't think that gift is for us today. But I am reminded to care for people's physical well-being. 
We care about their spiritual well-being most of all, but we do care for them physically. Secondly, care for people's spiritual well-being. Care more for people's spiritual well-being. Notice how Peter connects this miracle to the gospel, to the good news of God. Care more for people's spiritual well-being. I see a lot of people that go on mission trips that do really good and helpful things for communities. I see churches that do a lot of practical, good things for people. But I sometimes wonder if they care for people spiritually. You could care your whole life for people and what happens to them physically. You could give to them. You could be a really good person on the outside. But if you never care for them spiritually, then you've missed the entire point. We should care for people's physical well-beings, for their finances, for their health, for their person, their just emotional well-being. But we should most of all care for their spiritual well-being. Care about where they are with Christ. Finally, this is such a beautiful text for us to consider. I'm reminded to appreciate the beauty of the gospel. How God takes broken people, broken and sin-cursed things, and through the gospel transforms them into something that is beautiful. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word speaks to us. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for how it is your gospel. It's a gospel that comes from you. We thank you, Lord, that it's about Christ, who he is, how he lived. We thank you, Lord, that it's for us, that it doesn't have any restrictions on race, on who we are, social status, but that this gospel is for each and every one of us. God, would you help us to remember that this morning? Would you help us to appreciate the beauty of your gospel? Would you help us to share this gospel with the world? In Christ's name, amen.